excited to be here. My name is Kimberly Lee. My husband's a pastor here um, on staff at Element City Church. For those of you who don't know me, I am an action movie junkie. I like Gladiator, Transformers, G.I. Joe, that kind of stuff. I don't really like girly chick flicky movies. And it's not because I, I mean, they're cool and I am a girl, but I don't like to feel the angst. I don't want to cry. I just want to go sit in a movie and see things blown up ooh, and then leave and not think about it again. Um, and action movies are cool because you're just, they're in the moment. Things are getting blown up and most of the stuff on screen, it probably can't happen. Like all that love business and crying, ooh, it probably, it happens all the time. I've had my heart broken n- numerous times, but action movies, that stuff can't happen. In fact, most of it is impossible. Like let's take a look at a clip from one of those impossible movies. movies but come on this is impossible he's hanging by one little hand on the side I mean did you see that building impossible what are the odds of that actually working out like that I mean it's Tom Cruise so everything besides other personal stuff that works out for him on the movies tonight I'm going to talk about a mission that also should not have happened the way it did it was impossible it used the least likely people God used picked the one guy in the Bible that should not have been his go-to guy. He should not have made the list to do this mission. In fact, this guy was in exact opposition 
to the mission. In fact, he was the enemy. It would be like one of the bad guys going on Ethan Hunt's team, like switching teams at the last minute and be like, I don't trust you. Who are you? It would be like one of Bin Laden's dudes running around going, oh, I'm a Christian now and, and preaching Jesus to the Muslims. It seems impossible. The guy in the Bible that we're going to talk about tonight, his paperwork should never have made it through. It should not have got a stamp of approval from God as this is the guy for the mission, especially for this mission. It's, it's that big. And this guy was definitely not the one for the job in my eyes. I've made jokes about my paperwork, my past. How in the beginning when I was dating Brian, I didn't feel like that I passed the test or that my paperwork was good enough for the church. Um, just to give you some background, Brian, grew up in the church. He uh, never had any rebellion. He didn't have any big gaps of faith uh, in his faith. So I, the ideal girl, the perfect girl, let's be honest, that wasn't me, especially if you know me. Um, I didn't fit the image with who, who would be right for this godly man. A few weeks after becoming engaged, I call, I've started freaking out. I don't know if any of you have been married, but you get a little freaked out right before you get married. And I said, Brian, I cannot be this godly wife. Let's, let me go over some of the words I've heard humble, meek, gentle, gracious. Yeah, that's my family laughing. Um, willing to submit. <laughs> Are you kidding me? If you know me, those, I don't even come close to that stuff. So I call him crying and I was like, you cannot marry me. I can't even get a 50%. I'm a teacher. I can't even get a 50% on this test. I don't have any of these qualities. How on earth could this kind of girl with my kind of past marry a guy like him? When I first became a Christian, I would always ask, God, are you big enough for this? Because, you know, I still don't trust you all the way. And as the longer I went on, I constantly questioned him. I good enough for God. I spent years struggling with unworthiness. Have you ever felt that? That your paperwork, your past, your very personhood is not good enough? Not good enough for God to love, not good enough for God to use, not good enough for God to even pay attention to. I'm going to give you the bottom line up front tonight. I feel like cliff notes are good, especially for some of my family who's a little bit slow. Um, I want you to know exactly where I'm going tonight. I love that you just point your finger and like things come up. God is big enough to do the impossible. God wants to use every individual for his purposes. Even you, some of you are sitting like, no, no, not me. Yep, even you. And God transforms the unimaginable. Those are the three points if I want you to get out tonight. Watch for these things as we dig into Acts 9. In this chapter, there's this guy, Saul, who again, in my eyes, was so far from God, he was actually in direct opposition to the mission. He was the one who was against Christians. In fact, he was trying to lock them up and put them in chains. He's the one guy who God will use for this mission who should not have made the list of go-to guys. But first, I want to give you a little background on, on Saul. So we're going to be, he was very religious, blameless according to the law. He was a Pharisee of the Pharisee. He was a pope amongst popes. Like this guy was the man. Um, he was also a rich heritage. He had rich heritage. He was a Jew amongst Jews. Um, he belonged to the tribe of Benjamin. Benjamin was the, the elite, one of the elite tribes, you know, kind of like keeping up with the Joneses and be trying to keep up with the Benjamin tribe. Um, he was also well-educated. He trained at the feet of Gamaliel, one of Israel's greatest teachers of the day. Jack talked about him a couple of uh, weeks ago. He was ambitious. 
He was the top dog in his class. Those of you who are overachievers, top dog in his class. Like he was above all of his peers. He was also a man of loyalty. He actually would go to the priests and ask permission to take the Christians and put them in chains and arrest them. He was also full of bitterness and hatred. He was against anything and everyone who went against the law of Moses. Anybody who caused troubles for his people, he was, he hated, he was bitter. He was also not opposed to violence. He was there and he watched the coats of the men who stoned Stephen, who was one of Jesus' disciples. So keep these things in mind as we read about him and go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 9, verse 1. I'm going to be using the New King James Version, so if it's a little bit different, don't freak out. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, the verses are going to come up on the screen, so that's okay. I'll give you a moment. Just so you know, I borrowed this Bible from Brent, a new guy here. I said, hey, do you have any, anybody have a new King James Version? And he had one in the trunk of his car. Thanks, Brent. All right, you guys there? So Acts chapter 9, verse 1. Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. Now, no, he just started. But I need us to stop. He was uttering threats with every breath and was eager to kill the Lord's followers. Paul was not just threatening Christians. He was breathing threats. It was as though persecution was just, it was the breath, the air he breathed. This was not like a minor thing he did on the side after a hard day of work. This was his life. It went to his core as a Pharisee. This is the kind of person no one expects to be converted or come to love Jesus. His opposition was too deep and too articulate. He was in this, you guys. And he had taken such a public stand. It would be humiliating for him to like change his mind and go back on everything he based his life against. It'd be like the leader of the Taliban in Afghanistan saying, oh, I'm a Christian now, even though he just spent his whole life and all of these people getting to kill, getting them to kill Christians. This is the kind of guy Saul was. So go ahead. Let's look at verse two. So he went to the high priest He requested letters addressed to the synagogues in Damascus, asking for their cooperation of the arrests of any followers of the way he found there. He wanted to bring them both men and women back to Jerusalem in chains. Don't miss this. Saul wanted people's names. He wanted help from the synagogues to get their names. He wanted to find believers, put them in chains, get them arrested. He took this very seriously. He wanted to stamp out this new religion. He had death on his mind. Again, this is what he did. It was part of his core. In verse 3, as he was approaching Damascus on this mission, a light from heaven suddenly shone down around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? Then the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goats. Saul might be thinking, holy moly, the guy, Stephen, that I helped put to death, he was right. This, Jesus, is the Savior, Son of God. He is Lord, and he knows my name. He called me by name. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. Now, some of you don't have that last part in your Bible, but so I, I had to look it up. Like, what does kicking against the goads mean? It sounds painful. That is what Jesus said Saul was doing. So what, is it, what does it mean? A goad is a big stick 
that uses electricity. Well, back, this is Jesus time. There was no electricity or batteries. So it was this nine foot long stick that was sharpened at the end and it was used to drive cattle. The cattle could not kick against the herdsmen because they were nine feet away. So they used that stick to get the cattle to go where they wanted to go. That Jesus would use this analogy tells that Saul was resisting God's prodding, causing God to go to him even harder. Move. Stimulate some kind of action. I don't know if anybody has had that where God's just like, get your butt up, get going, move. And he just kept poking Saul harder. So what was wrong with Saul's life that God thought he, he's kicking the, he was kicking against the goat? First of all, there was a problem with Saul's faith. You see, Saul had a religion, but he did not have a relationship. Saul had a religion, and he did not have a relationship. You guys, those are two very, very separate things. Some of us in here, we know the rules, we've got the laws, we've got the do's and don'ts list. But we're missing out on the relationship of the one who created us. Religion doesn't change lives. Religion, it kind of protects the rules and the regulations and the do's and don'ts. Religion doesn't transform you. Only a relationship with Jesus can do that. Saul, was, he was also a Jew. I told you about that. He, he was the Jew amongst Jews. He knew, again, all the laws. Saul knew Judaism, but he didn't know God. You can know all the rules again, but not know the creator. That's the peril of an inherited religion. You cannot get to heaven on the coattails of anybody else. It has to be a relationship, a personal one. A quick lesson for us parents. If you're not parents, you can put your fingers in your ears, blah, blah, blah. It's important that we teach our children the tenets of Christianity, that we help them understand their morals and the ethnics that grow in our faith. Okay, that is important. But it is far more important to introduce our children to Jesus Christ. If our children grow up believing that Christianity is just going to church, singing the right songs, praying the right prayers, doing the right things, then they, then we are failing as parents. If they think that Christianity is just all the, you know, that we're against abortion and premarital sex and drugs and alcohol, rock and roll and all the other tattoos, taboos of our days, then again, we have failed them. We don't want our children to inherit our religion. We want him to meet our savior. Saul had a wonderful religion, but he was missing out on a wonderful relationship with God. That's the one reason Jesus said he was kicking against the goats. He was fighting against something that was way bigger than his little religion. He had service, but he lacked salvation. Paul was carrying out the business of protecting a religion, but he was missing out on the relationship with God. So in verse six, let's go back to your Bibles. So he trembling and astonished said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Then the Lord said to him, arise and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. You guys, Saul went from not believing to saying, Lord, acknowledging him that this is the true deal. This is the real deal. Saul was, I mean, amazed. And this conversion was sudden and utterly unexpected. He was on that road to Damascus to go find more Christians to put in chains. 
This was not something on his to-do list. He wasn't like prepared to do this. He wasn't ripe for the picking to do this. God takes the key player in the persecution of Christians and turns him totally around. I think that's cool. That Saul, who was breathing threats and, and murders against Christians, doesn't just drop dead, which would have been a miracle in itself. He gets converted to Christianity. And not just converted like, oh, that was nice. He gets wildly converted beyond anybody's imagination. So converted that he totally turns around from being the worst enemy of Christianity to one of the most powerful and prestigious missionaries of Christianity. Like, that's crazy. Saul had seen God and trembling before the glory, stripped of everything that he, all those seven things he had there, he cried out, what do you want me to do, Lord? God is big enough for the impossible. God is big enough for the impossible. What God wants us to see in this conversion, this transformation, is that the most unlikely people, this is my favorite part because this is for me, most unlikely people can be redeemed and give their life to Jesus. God's mercy and power are not limited to the Bryans, although that's great. I love Brian. He's my favorite person in the whole world. But it's not, it's not just set up for people who were raised in a Christian home, who came from good church, who didn't have any blemishes in their moral background history. The chief of sinners turned his life around. He was transformed because of a personal encounter with Jesus. I've told you, uh, some of you guys, about my friend Mark. I've been crying all day, just so you know. Uh, we've been friends since we were 13. That's 27 years. Do the numbers. I'm an old lady. That's older than some of you in this room. I get that. Um, we've been through everything together. Middle school, high school, first loves, first marriages. We have fought. We've not talked for a few years. We've been through it all. Did I ever tell you about the time he pushed me in a ditch and ripped my pantyhose? Um, that's a whole nother story. It just makes me tear to this day. When our son Lawson, we have three kids. When our son Lawson was born, we gave Mark, we gave Lawson Mark's middle name. Some people question me because Mark was not a Christian. Why would you name your son after a Christian? This is why. Loyalty, friendship that spanned almost four decades. And I wanted to give my son a name for the possibility of radical change. You see, I became a Christian 17 years ago, and since that day, I have been praying for Mark because I want one of my best friends raising Cain, which he will do, for eternity. I want Mark to be seated at the throne with his entire family in heaven with Jesus for eternity. But if you know him, a couple of you guys have met him out there, he's a tough cookie. He's got a really quick wit. That if he finds one little crack in what you got to say, he'll flip it around and turn it on you. And all of a sudden you're like, whoa, what just happened? Um, I try not to be care. I tried to be careful not to share too much because I didn't want to scare him away. I prayed his new wife, who I adore, would love me. Maybe not love me, just really like me a lot. She does. I prayed that God would give me opportunities to share Jesus with him. He did. I know the odds were against Mark in coming to become a Christian. He reminded me of Saul. He thought Jesus was a crutch for weak people. He mocked most everything about it. And it'd be close to impossible. He didn't grow up in church. There was no background. He had so much junk in in baggage. I just thought, ugh, it's impossible. 
He's also stubborn and hard-headed and likes things his own way. And his life was pretty good, so why would he want my Jesus? Also, if you did the math, those of you who are good at math, we're 40 years old. According to Barner Research Group, less than 4% of people become Christians after 40. Less than 4%. The odds against Mark coming to know Jesus, almost impossible. 4%. Two months ago, back there, Mark said yes to Jesus. If you're just saying, I mean, I don't even know how you can't get an amen out of that. Um, God is big enough to do the impossible. Just like the story of Saul, God took the seemingly impossible person, Mark, and made him his. Saul and Mark, again, they weren't ripe for the picking. Some might say they were way beyond the picking. But these stories give us hope. Show us that, that God is big enough. Who's on your list of impossible? Can't be done. So far out there, they're never going to come back in. We should keep praying for him. This story of Saul, that story of Mark should remind you, God is big enough to do the impossible. Keep speaking the truth in love, having faith that God wants everyone. God wants everyone. Let's go back to verse 7. And the men who journeyed with him stood speechless, because Saul's story is sure not done. For they heard the sound of someone's voice, but saw no one. Saul picked himself up off the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he was blind. So his companions led him by the hand, on Damas- by the hand to Damascus. He remained there blind for three days and did not eat or drink. Some say Paul was blinded by the light, but... The guys that were with him, they saw the light too and they were not blinded. Some say he was blinded to show how spiritually corrupt, how spiritually blinded Saul was before this encounter. But bottom line, Saul can't see. He's probably a little bit freaked out. He's a little bit scared. He's a little bit confused. I mean, his whole life just completely changed around. And he's wondering, what next? What happens next? Well, let's see in verse 10. Now, there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And to him, the Lord said in a vision, Ananias. And he said, yes, Lord. The Lord said, go straight over, go over to Straight Street to the house of Judas. Where you, when you get there, ask for a man named Tars, from Tarsus named Saul. He's praying to me right now. I've shown him a vision of a man named Ananias coming in and laying hands on him so he can see again. Now, let's take a look at this guy, Judas, where Saul went to go stay. It's not like Saul checked into a hotel or a motel or the inn. He went and stayed at the house of a follower of Jesus Christ. Let's think about what Judas is thinking. He's already got that jacked up name from the guy who portrayed Jesus. And he's got to open the door. And who's standing there but the main dude against Christians as far as he knows. Yeah, he's blinded and he's probably a little sick and kind of funky looking. But this guy, he knows could put him in chains when he gets better. What does Judas do? He opens his door and lets him come in. That's an act of charity and obedience to God. How many of us would be just like, yeah, come on in. Saul, Christian killer. One who might, when you get get better, might take me out. Judas reflected Jesus well by obeying and, and just saying, you know what? This is a sick guy. He can come in. 
That's huge. Verse 13, but the Lord exclaimed, but Lord exclaimed Ananias. I've heard many people talk about the terrible things this man has done to believers in Jerusalem. And he's authorized by the leading priest to arrest anyone who calls upon your name. Now let's put ourselves in Ananias' shoes. Um, hey God, I think you might be a little turned around. You might get things confused, the names. Because the guy that you're asking me to go do this with, he's a bad dude. And I don't mean bad in like a good way. Like he's bad. He's putting people in chains and getting them arrested and putting them to death. I'm not sure this is a person I want to mess with. I mean, I can see Ananias' point. This would be scary. So God's response. But the Lord said, go, Saul, for go, for Saul is my chosen instrument to take my message to the Gentiles. And to the kings as well to the people of Israel. Saul is my chosen instrument to take the message to the Gentiles. Huh? Are you kidding me? Ananias might be saying, seriously, this guy that you're choosing for this epic mission has become a Christian? The guy Saul? Are you sure, God? Are you really, really sure? Because if you mess this one up, I'm going to go get myself in trouble. This is one bad dude with a really bad reputation. Verse 16 and 17. And I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. So Ananias went and found Saul. He laid his hands on him and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road has sent me so that you might regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Let's get that part. And may be filled with the Holy Spirit. The chief of sinners had become a follower of Christ. God wants to use every individual for his purposes even you god used judas to take care of saul when he was sick god used ananias to restore him and restore his sight he used the new church to love on this man who used to breathe threats and murderous thoughts against christians he used saul who will be renamed paul to spread the word of jesus to the gentiles you might be saying no not me god doesn't really want to He's not going to use me. I'm scared. Really? You don't think Judas or Ananias was scared? Have, has, has loving Jesus threatened your life at ever? They, I mean, their lives were threatened. He can't use me because I've done too many bad things. I've been there. I have some really bad paperwork. But Saul wasn't exactly the go-to guy for God. I mean, he used to kill Christians. He was part of killing Jesus' disciples. If God can use him, God can use you. God wants to use every purpose, every individual for his purposes. Over the next few verses, crazy things happen. Saul gets his sight back. He gets baptized. He hangs out with the believers um, for a few days. And then almost immediately he starts preaching about Jesus in the synagogues. People's kind of freaking out, wouldn't you? What's up with this guy? Isn't this the guy who just last week was putting people in chains? Do you think they trusted him? Come on over. No. But guess what happened? Paul's preach, Saul's preaching became more powerful because this guy had a story to tell. So powerful that some of the Jews, remember, Saul is Jewish. Some of the Jews started plotting to kill him. Talk about role reversals. He went from being one of the most loved 
Pharisees to being hunted to die. From a murderer to a missionary to now he's on the most wanted list. Saul, after a few days of following Jesus, he immediately began preaching from the synagogues. He didn't wait till I'm older, till I know more. He didn't come up with a whole bunch of excuses like, but I'm shy, it's embarrassing. Do you think it wasn't embarrassing or I wasn't scared to share with Mark? He knew, he knew my past, he knew all my paperwork and I had to go before him and say, I've changed. And he's like, yeah, right. But, but Saul, he had a personal encounter with Jesus. He was on a mission to tell everyone about it, no matter the cost. You guys, no matter the cost. There's something so exciting and so dramatic about this transformation. From the persecutor who finds himself confronted by the glory of God, from his heart being changed from a murderer to a missionary. God transforms the unimaginable. God transforms the unimaginable. You guys, he went from a murderer to a missionary. Saul, this is how drastically his life changed. He would abandon a life of luxury, prestige, to preach the gospel of grace. He walked away from friends, family, his fortune, all the money to go hang out with, to go talk about Jesus and tell everybody about him. He wrote 13 of the 27 books of the New Testament. He will be beaten. He will be imprisoned for his faith. He will take three missionary journeys all over the area. He will start a number of churches and he will literally lead thousands, thousands to Jesus. He will eventually end up back in Rome where he was transformed on that road to Damascus and he will die for that faith. He will die for that personal encounter with Jesus. Saul was a faithful believer and a powerful preacher. The hope here, I, I, if you guys can just grasp this little part right here, the hope is that if God can take the fiercest opponent and change him into a willing servant, he has the ability to save anyone. God has the ability to save anyone. He transforms the unimaginable. Willing servants change the world. We could agree that Saul changed the world. That's what we're called to be. We're called to be Saul's. No, not me. Like Saul, Saul, he was kind of a cool. No, he was a murderer and he was a missionary. God wants you not to murder people first, but he still wants you to be a missionary. How might this look in your life? How will this change how you plan your week? Can you look for ways willing to serve and jump in where God is? Because I'm telling you, God's moving. And either you're on the train or you're not. Because he's moving. He's not going to be like, oh, I just wait till you have the time of day to get around to it. He's moving. I grew up with an alcoholic father. He started drinking um, when he was 10 years old. He grew up in a small trailer in a small town in Georgia. By the time he was sent to Korea in the Air Force, he was a full-blown drunk. He'd spent the next 55 years in addiction. At times he was sober, a couple months here or there. He went through six rehabs. By his sixth one, I had given up. I just didn't think it could be done. At 65 years old, he went to the VA for his seventh rehab. 
I didn't even blink an eye, you guys. In fact, I don't even think I knew he, he showed up because, like, he's going to call and tell us. I mean, seventh rehab. Every single time he'd gone in and came out, it lasted a few months, but he always returned to the bottle. I had never known, at 38, I was when I was 38, I'd never known a sober dad. That was two years ago. My dad went into the VA on his seventh rehab, stayed three months, and he's been sober ever since. 55 years of drinking, and God transformed him. This wasn't because of his program. This wasn't because of some awesome, you know, people, which they were very good at the VA. It was his seventh rehab, you guys. Only God transforms like that. 55 years of addiction. And God transferred in, transformed him into a new man. God transforms the unimaginable. I never imagined that my dad would be sober. 38 years, I've made it without a sober dad. Crazy. God's design in transforming Saul is to give you hope for yourself and for people that you love, that you want them to come to see Jesus. Paul's conversion is for us. It's for your sake. I want you to take this very personally. Don't think, oh, that's for the guy next to me because he's jacked up. I want you to take this very personally. God had you in mind when he chose to save Saul this way. God had you in mind, again, not the person next to you, you. That's why Saul's conversion was so brilliant. It was a brilliant demonstration of Jesus' love. It was for our sake, your sake, that Jesus did it the way he did. He wanted to show us the whole of his glory. I mean, that story is crazy. So we don't lose heart. So we don't think he can't really save us or he can't save that person who's too far away. So we don't think we've gone too far away. We're too far gone for even God to come find us. So we don't think our loved one can't be changed by the, the sovereign grace of Jesus Christ. We might not all be stopped on the, on a road with a brilliant light and a voice talking to us and blinding us and asking us to go do certain things. But hear this element city church. We can all be transformed in ways that Saul was transformed. Answering the call from Jesus saying, yep, I'm in. We'll transform you. I promise. Are there some mission impossibles in your life? Are there people that you know that it seems unimaginable that they would ever be saved? Do you question if God could really use you? You think, oh, yeah, she gets up there, she says that, but not me. You don't know my past. You don't know my paperwork. Have you yet to say yes and answer the call to Jesus to transform your life? And I ask you, what are you waiting for? Are you waiting for to get better, to get more perfect to do the more bright things to to wait till you're older to wait till you're younger i mean what, what are you waiting for like i said in the beginning god is big enough to do the impossible look how he took saul from murderer to missionary look how he took mark from mocker to following jesus at 40 god does impossible things all the time god wants to use Every individual for his purposes, even you. He used Ananias, he used Judas, he used the new church, he used Saul, he uses me to get up here. You guys, I have no 
paperwork to be up here. But I'm going to show you my paperwork. Here's my, this is old school for you people who don't just, we used to use tablets and paper for writing. That's my name. This was really hard to write. It's actually embarrassing. Some of this stuff's embarrassing. Um, I cried when I wrote it. I didn't actually want to share it. But I need you to know how bad some of my paperwork is. Both my grandpas are alcoholics. One was an abuser. Grandma's alcoholic. Everyone on dad's side, mom, dog, aunts, uncles, cousins to the fourth power. Everybody struggles with addiction. Dad's an alcoholic, mom with mental issues, liar, cheater, drugs, thief, drinking, sex, bad decisions, bad boyfriend choices, really bad boyfriend choices, selfish, self-absorbed, not good enough, unworthy, lonely, not a good friend all the time, denial. That's just some of the ones I could think about that I could put up here. That's my paperwork. And that's not details, it's just at one point or time, one point of the time or another. And this is what God says. This is what God does with my paperwork. He takes all of that and he says, Kimberly, I bought you. You are mine and this stuff does not define who you are. You know what defines you? This cross. This cross is who I am. I am the daughter of a mighty, mighty king. That's the only paperwork I have to get up here. That's the only paperwork. Some of you are saying, my paperwork's worse. Yeah, I bet. I bet you guys got some junk in your trunk and in your backpack and everywhere. We could fill up a whole room with some of your guys' drunk. Junk. No, don't, not drunk. Not drunk. <laughs> junk. And I challenge you. This is the answer. God transforms the unimaginable. God wants the city of Tucson for him, you guys. He wants the unimaginable, the impossible for him. He wants to unleash, it's the title of our series, he wants to unleash Element City Church to serve and love the heart of this city. He wants to see churches united. He wants to see people from all walks of life put aside their past, their differences, and claim this city for him. Claim this city for him, you guys. And believe in those things that God, those three things, God is big enough for the impossible. He wants to use every individual, even you. And he can transform the unimaginable. As we, right before we celebrate communion, there's stations around the room. As we, as we go to communion time, I want you to remember that God's love gets involved to bring about transformation. In the next few moments as we have worship and you take communion, if you want, think about how God has transformed your life and thank him. If you have lived a life and you were transformed by him, say thank you. Because a lot of us in this room, we're stuck in this without the cross still. We're stuck in this. Pray for your brothers and sisters around you that are still stuck. It's a, it's a, a dark and lonely place to be. Think about how he wants to continue to transform you. Some of you sitting here going, I'm golden. I'm good. I got this one in the bag. Really? 
Really? Because are you, are you on the train that's going to the heart of the city to transform Tucson? Think about how you can reflect him well to a watching world. Some of our lives, we don't reflect him well. We wouldn't have been Judas and opened that door. We wouldn't have been Ananias and said, I will go. I will go to this, this Christian killer. We wouldn't have been the new church and be like, yeah, come back in. Some of you, we really want, we want some people to clean up before they come to church. I didn't. I didn't clean up before I came to church. I didn't even clean up before I dated Brian. I want you to say yes. Jesus is saying he wants you to say yes to him no matter what your paperwork is. No matter what your paperwork is. God is big enough. He wants to use everyone, even you. And he can transform the unimaginable. Dear Heavenly Father, I just, I just want to say thank you for your, your awesomeness and your bigness. And you're just, you're just so much bigger than I can imagine. Lord, in the last 17 years, you've proven over and over and over that you have so many surprises and so much out there for, for everybody. Lord, I just want to pray for all the people sitting in here that right now they will not leave here tonight without thinking, what next, God? What next? Do I need to say yes to you? Do I need to be still transformed? Do I need to forget my paperwork and claim the cross? Lord, I just want to make sure that people will, will say, say yes, Lord, that they, they will hear that knocking and they will, they will answer it. Lord, thank you so much for who you are and thank you for transforming us into your creation. In your name we pray, amen.